Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrtnach, a historian reading blacklisted books for Smosh. That this research project indulges my filthy mind is entirely coincidental. You can support the show through Patreon, buying merch, and telling your mates to listen. Check out the links in the episode notes for more. The band book this time is Growing Up in Samoa by Margaret Mead. It was published in America in 1928 and was extremely popular straight away. Growing Up in Samoa was based on anthropological research but it's not a heavy technical academic text. Mead wrote it for a popular audience and they loved it. The Irish censors didn't blacklist it till 1944, meaning it could have been read for nearly 20 years before it was banned. The Library of Trinity College Dublin had one copy, so a very small, privileged readership could access it. Now that doesn't mean it was in bookshops or normal libraries, nagging busybodies could get books taken out of circulation without the help of the state censor. In other words, I have no idea if anyone could read it before 1944, and I haven't a clue why it was banned that particular year. But Margaret Mead and her work is both important and interesting, so I roped in a guest to talk about growing up in Samoa. Dr Fergal Linehan works in the Friedrich Schiller Universität Jena, on a project called Redico, Researching Digital Interculturality Cooperatively. This last year, he co-edited a volume called Reclaiming the European Street. It's a collection of speeches by Irish President Michael D. Higgins. But he's leaving all that wonderful European work aside to talk to me about early 20th century anthropology. Hello, Fergal. Welcome to the podcast. Hi Aoife, how you doing? <laughs> I'm good, thank you for joining me on this uh, not very sunny day here in Ireland uh, for hopefully a sunny experience talking about beautiful tropical islands. I think so. <laughs> so one of the things I like to do is to pick a drink to match the book. There's a bit of a problem in this one in that the um, subject matter of the book is American Samoa and the people seem to drink some traditional fermented drink that Obviously, we don't have access to. So I was thinking possibly a cocktail or something tropical or, I mean, what do you think that uh, Margaret Mead herself might have been drinking when she was there? 
Oh God, that's a good question. I, I would say that she 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 did take kava when she was there. What was it made from again? Was it from roots or plantain or? Um, I'm not sure to be honest. It was a bit unclear what that actually was. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually, and it, it is a thing in the book. There often there aren't very many specifics. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because for an anthropology book, you often expect great detail on like what their clothes look like or their tattoos and it's none of that seems to come through it's quite yeah 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 definitely not i suppose it is for a general audience and you can really see it in in a lot of what she's saying there's a lot of generalizations and absolute statements which you wouldn't really have in 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 an anthropology book really yeah now it was interesting that this got banned so late of course because it was banned in 44 whereas it's published in 1928 And I really don't know the reason for that. Nobody really knows the rhyme nor reason for what the censors did. So we'll just have to accept it. But if we were to accept that they actually read the book, um, the rude bits. So the first part that I thought they may have objected to was on page 33. This is from page 33. And it's from a chapter called The Education of the Samoan Child. And it talks about how girls are educated within the society that Mead is studying. And it talks about she helps with the plantation work and the cooking. She weaves very little on her fine mat, but she thrusts virtuosity away from her as she thrusts away every other sort of responsibility with the invariable comment, lahiti au, which means I am but young. All of her interest is expended on clandestine sex adventures, and she is content to do routine tasks. So there you go. I think that might have offended them. The idea that girls spent their days doing not very much apart from planning when next to have sex. And what bit did you think? Was it was that the first bit? Or I did find myself getting a bit lost in the book. So I had to concentrate quite hard to look for the rude bits because it is quite engaging. But what part did did jumped out for you? Yeah, it is quite engaging, but it is very, uh, it's not very explicit. And it's not, I mean, it does remain very general. She talks about, at the start, casual homosexual practices, which basically she says everybody engages in, in the three villages that she looks at uh, when they're adolescents. And she talks about being among the palm trees, which is the local code for clandestine sex. And she talks about the local children actually having a game of going in and annoying the people in among the palm trees, which was sort of funny <laughs> and sort of sort of shocking. But actually, I really liked the bit where she talks about divorce, actually, about the, the easiness of divorce. And yes. I think if the, in my book, it's page 75. And if the censor got that far, it really must have freaked the hell out of them, to be honest. Okay, so she writes, If, on the other hand, a wife really tires of her husband or a husband of his wife, divorce is a simple and informal matter. The non-resident simply going home to his or her family and the relationship is said to have passed away. It is a very brittle monogamy, often trespassed, more often broken entirely. But many adulteries occur between a young marriage shy bachelor and a married woman or a temporary widower and a young girl, which hardly threaten the continuity of established relationships. The claim that a woman has on her family's land renders her as independent as her husband. And so there are no marriages of any duration in which either person is actively unhappy. A tiny flare-up and a woman goes home to her own people. If her husband does not care to conciliate her, each seeks another mate. And to be honest, I I found this astonishing, really. (laughs) Not least the the female agency that is there and the sort of the the independence of of women. uh... Yeah, it it does sound a very simple and equitable situation in regards to marriage, which is pretty unusual in a lot of societies where things are very heavily weighted towards men in general. 
Definitely, definitely, and, and very equal. And I must say, um, when I was reading it, reading it, I had to think straight away of the story of uh, Guanya Whale and the story surrounding her second divorce. And I don't know if it's, I mean, it's obviously more of a myth than, than history or anything, but apparently she divorced her second husband by saying, I divorce you three times while she was in her castle and he was outside. And um, it's obviously something that would have completely freaked out the, the censor if they'd gotten that far. Here, there's, there's no church, there's no sort of institutional authority of any kind it's just sort of a form of words and it's sort of a it's it's very casual actually easygoing and flexible really it's a really interesting idea that there are societies that manage interpersonal relationships without great authoritarian structures of control around them and for the irish censor that's a fairly radical idea i mean they banned divorce yeah Exactly. So I'd like to talk a bit more about what sort of text this is, because that's what's unique about it. Uh, This isn't a novel, which is my normal fare, and it's not a memoir. It's an academic study, but it's very much written for the popular market. So I suppose we call it a crossover text now. And when it was first published in 1928, it sold well, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It was actually um, a massive bestseller and sort of established her reputation as a public intellectual in, in the United States. She she basically, she spent six months in Samoa researching it and lived among three villages, Okay, so that the database is probably pretty small. Then she wrote an academic study and gave it to the people who, who financed her field trip, the sort of the, the National Research Council it was, I think. And then she sat down and she consciously wanted to write a popular book that would be read by a large number number of people, basically. And it is, I mean, it is the first the first book to use ethnographic data from another context as, as a springboard for basically for critiquing American society. And that's sort of the newness of the book uh, and the interesting sort of um, perspective she brings, I suppose. Yeah, it's quite polemical in its own way, isn't it? She talks a lot about comparing what she sees Western, in this case, American society versus American Samoan traditional society and you know how they might compare and contrast and what it might tell you about both yeah definitely it is it is very polemical and in many ways I mean it's a, it's a book more about uh, social and political ideas more than about uh, anthropology and I mean there is an underlying sort of radical philosophy inherent to it I, I think and it's, it is all about to a certain extent about her engaging with her ideas about how society could be could be run and um and getting people to think about the, the norms that they have internalized. What's interesting as well is that I mean there were other popular anthropology books at the time uh, which sold relatively well, but which we would now see as just basically racist ramblings and it's completely unscientific and 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 it's, and it's rubbish simply. So for example, you had a, you had a book called Lothrod Stoppard's The Rising Tide of Color from 1920 and Madison Grant's. The Passing of the Great Race from 1916, which sold very, very well. They sound terrible. <laughs> yeah, but they're basically, it's, it's scientific races and they're biologically oriented anthropology, which was the main sort of um, type of anthropology that, that was done at, at this time. And Grant's book actually, when translated into, into German, uh, Adolf Hitler was was a, a loyal reader and he even mentions him in Mein Kampf. And that's the kind of anthropology which was dominant at, at the time and Mead was with she was with a circle of authors under Franz Boas who, who argued for cultural anthropology and Boas um, he, he saw race as an unstable category which which shouldn't be used and we were often sort of minority voices but actually very radical I think. that was an extremely radical context concept at that time that race was unstable I mean the whole all societies in the west were obsessed with race as a 
provable scientific category. It's remarkable. Yeah. Definitely, definitely, without a doubt, and um, I think Boaz was sort of an earlier, an, an early sort of thinker who who deconstructed the the category of race. Um, he he wasn't his books weren't as successful as uh, among a popular audience as as sort of the, the these racist books. But I mean, he's he's making these these arguments in the early in the early twentieth century when, as you say, um, race was 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 a category that was deemed to dominate everything. And I mean, this this feeds into to mass murder and, and systematic racism, basically. And to a certain extent, Mead is doing something similar because I mean, she's she's deconstructing gender categories or at least sort of. Uh, socially accepted um, gender roles, I suppose, more so than um, than gender categories. Um, and I mean, it's sort of a, a parallel sort of thing that she's doing in relation to to gender, whereas Boas sort of talked about about race and it, as an inappropriate category. Yes, she is very interested in what she sees as the maladjusted girls within a Western context and how that might be improved if you looked at different societies, such as the one that she studied in Samoa. And I thought from an Irish perspective, I mean, given this is from 1928, it was remarkably frank about sexual shame and the role that ignorance and secrecy play in sustaining ideas of shame and fear around sex. And I just thought it was an amazingly fresh take, even now. Yeah, definitely. And it was something when I was rereading the book, which I found very, very striking again. I mean, she basically, she describes her society, these three villages, as as having basically no no sense of privacy and no idea of, of spatial privacy at all. And she describes what, what she calls um, birth, sex and death as being completely open things, that, that children grow up and, and they see people dying. They see people literally having sex and they see people engaging in these different things. They see, um, they see childbirths going, see childbirths <laughs> and they see childbirths going wrong. And that there's, there's no real sense of, of these things being closed off processes that they're, they're seen as completely normal and completely open. And she sort of takes, takes this and then she compares it with what she sees as American society where she sees these same processes as being hidden beside, behind sort of walls of privacy firstly, and, and walls of shame. And and for her, this results in, in psychological stress. And I suppose she offers here these three villages in Samoa as a way of things can be different and as sort of um, a, sort of a counter argument to how things can be done, I, I suppose. When I when I was reading it too, actually, I, I had to think about the, the discussion which is ongoing in Ireland at the moment regarding sex and health education and the need to have a very sort of open and scientific approach to things and not just to be clouding things in in code as ever and to be hiding things away in certain forms of language. I mean, she was so polemical about the need to be open about sex, that sex is, it exists, it happens, we need to get over it and we need to stop pretending that there's something strange about it. And she was very much, I think, focused on the experiences of adolescent girls rather than, you know, boys or re-educating boys. She's saying we need to re-educate girls in their conceptualization of their self. I mean, that's a radical thing to say still. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and the very the very fact that she does, okay, the very fact that she is a woman and she's on her own, basically, in American Samoa doing research is is astonishing in a lot of ways for, for, for the time. Um, and the very fact that her, her the center of her study is, is adolescent girls is is also sort of another uh, radical thing, definitely. Um, I found it also interesting that um, the society she describes in these three villages is also a class-dominated society. 
and that you have here the, the what she calls the taupa, the princesses, who are forced to guard their, their virginity very, very closely. And she even describes what she says now, it's something historical that doesn't exist anymore. And she's obviously writing in the 1920s, um, in which the, the taupa, the princesses, basically lost their virginity publicly. And if they weren't virgins, that they were, they were stoned to death. Okay, which is something which she says doesn't exist anymore. It's forbidden. But it's interesting that you still have a quite an extreme sort of class culture where you here you have the majority, who she describes as the plebeians, who are very casual and engaged and and relaxed about everything in relation to to, to sexual matters and the, the taupa. Uh, and because their marriages are are basically of economic worth, they they really have to guard their their sexuality an awful lot more than than everybody else, uh, which is also interesting. And I, 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 when I was thinking about it, I thought, okay. Ireland in the 1920s, everyone was a taupa. Everyone was one of these princesses. And there were very few um, plebeians, if you know what I mean. There was maybe small bohemian circles who were casual about these sort of things. I thought it was interesting how in that way she did manage to show that within one society, you could have competing versions of attitudes to sexuality, where you could have, you could enshrine something and make it very symbolic in the case of taupa but that that was understood to relate to just some people, but not everyone else. I thought that was great. And it's sort of two extremes. There's no, nothing between us, <laughs> which is also the, 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 the amazing thing. Yeah. And, um, and the fact that, that these things more or less become ritualized and become sort of norms. Um, okay. It was great from a point of view of anthropology that sometimes gets a bit hung up on the ritual side of things and can get very focused on ritual meaning and all of these symbolic states. But she's very careful to say, yes, this exists and this is how it works. But also there's the way people actually live their lives. And I thought that was very subtle. It showed that she was observing very well, I thought, when she went to this society, that there could be deep contradictions. And that was fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At at times in the book, of course, it sounds as if she's reproducing sort of gossip (laughs) to a certain extent. Because, I mean, it is bit written uh, I mean, based on interviews with, with 68 adolescent girls. And um, I, I think sometimes she, she takes things maybe at, at face value a bit too much and doesn't doesn't question uh, certain statements which, which were made. Um, at least it reads that way. But, I mean, it's not written in an academic way, so we can't really yeah, judge that yeah, in yeah. any way. I do always um, think that's the quandary for anthropologists is really how do you know what truth in the sense of what you're looking for? can exist yeah. from other people's perspective when they're coming from such a different culture and trying to translate their culture into your terms. It's it's not an easy task. No, definitely not. And um, we need to talk a bit about Mead herself because she's such an interesting person. I mean, not only does she go on her own, a young unmarried woman, to... Uh, oh, she was married. Oh, she was married. She oh, was but married. see, then isn't she trying to shack up with someone else or choose someone else at the same time? Yeah, it's quite complex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's quite complex. I'm confused. <laughs> she is married, but she's married um, to what she called in her autobiography her, her student marriage. Her student What's his name? Marriage. Her student marriage. She's married at the time to uh, Luther Cressman, who was actually an Anglican priest. He was actually an Anglican priest. Uh, and later left the the priesthood, and he didn't leave and join the circus, but he he left and became an archaeologist and became quite a well known academic <laughs> uh, at himself uh, himself. And, uh, and yeah, and to a certain extent, when she's going to Samoa, okay, she's going to do her field research, but she's also escaping from a very messy personal life. <laughs> uh, she ended up in uh, her background is interesting too. Actually, she she was born in Pennsylvania, and her parents were both academics. 
Her father was a professor of economics and her mother had actually done sociological research and had never sort of completed it. And she grew up in a very sort of open-minded environment, I suppose, is, is what I'm saying. And apparently she, uh, at the age of 11, she, she stopped being a Methodist and she decided that she wanted to be Episcopalian, which is obviously what, what people do at 11 years of age. <laughs> totally normal teenage rebellion, yeah. Exactly, yeah, and apparently her, fa- her father didn't mind because he was a he was a Methodist on paper, but was a um, actually an, an atheist. And she ended up in in Bernard College in New York doing postgraduate research, and then in Columbia. And she married married Cressman, who, who she who she met. And when she was when she left the United States in 1925 to go to Samoa, she was obviously she was married. Uh, she also was engaging in an affair with Edward Sapir who was an anthropology professor and linguistic scholar at that time based in Chicago. And he was basically putting pressure on her to divorce Cressman and to marry him because his wife had died and he wanted somebody to take care of his children. He basically wanted um, he wanted her to give up everything. And it actually didn't really take her very seriously as, as an academic and was actually later quite critical of her work in a personalized, probably sort of, um, sort of way. And she was, also, she was also having an on-off um, relationship with Ruth Benedict, who had also been her teacher and was also an anthropologist. And she, she called Benedict um, her, only, her, her only lesbian longing, according to a, a book that her daughter later wrote, actually, about, about her parents. And she had an on-off relationship with, with Ruth Benedict until the late 1930s. So she, it wasn't just a love triangle. It's quite a, <laughs> a more, more complex shape. <clears throat> and then she left, uh, she left these three sort of relationships and went to, went to Samoa and did her research and on the way back to Samoa, she, she she went back via Europe and via New Zealand. And on the boat from New Zealand to Britain, she met a guy called Rio Fortune, who was going to Cambridge to do some postgraduate study. Fell in love with Fortune. Eventually uh, divorced Cressman and married Fortune. Fortune also became an anthropologist. And then they later, they later herself and Fortune went to New Guinea to uh, to do field field research and to, to, to work together. While they were there, they met a guy, another anthropologist called Gregory Bateson, and uh, the three of them were living together for, for a period, and uh, Mead and Fortune fell out, and then actually Mead uh, fell in love with Gregory Bateson, and then Bateson became her, her third husband, and she married him in 1936, uh, after she d- divorced uh, Fortune then as well, and they were together until 1950, and she had a, a daughter with Bateson, um, and it's interesting because... I, Often you see radical radical thinkers have very conventional personal lives because maybe they need the stability, and if they're very radical in their thought, they're maybe actually quite conservative in their home life, maybe, uh, which isn't the case with Mead at all. And it's to a certain extent. I mean, coming of age in Samoa is about her finding a context which sort of confirms that the way she wants to live. And from an early age, she said she believed in polygamy and shocked a lot of her friends. Uh, and the, the the way she she lived with a more sort of casual relationship. Uh, two relationships that that there's sort of other contexts in which that is a norm and how did she have the time i mean not just multiple <laughs> partners but both <laughs> genders moving all around the world doing the field work writing the books i mean wow kudos to her really for still working and producing so much stuff in the context of all of this upheaval which most people would you know would faint under the weight of all that drama One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah, yeah. I think at certain stages in her life, she was very stressed by and stressed by her personal life rather than, than her work life. And you're right. What's amazing, too, is that after coming of age in Samoa, she becomes a very famous public intellectual in the United States and remains that really un- until her, her death. And um, she's asked on to contribute to a number of different debates about whatever topics are relevant at the time. And she's very often on television once television becomes becomes a thing and, and on radio. And in different, even recently, I was reading about cybernetics and and you had um, different councils which were brought together in the late 1940s to discuss cybernetics. And Amid is the only woman that's there. <laughs> and uh, she, she's bringing the anthropological perspective. And she's, you know, uh, that was the, the, the reputation that she had. What's also interesting is that Mead never had a full-time academic job. What? Yeah, she had a she had a, a job from a relatively early stage at the Natural Natural History Museum in New York, and it seems to have given her a lot of of uh, freedom because she travelled a lot and wrote a lot. Uh, and otherwise, she had she had part time hours in Columbia University. She never actually had a full time professorship, which is which is amazing. And it's also true for a lot in the the in the Boas circle. He developed an interesting circle of minds which were mostly women uh, and people that are read widely still and, and are interesting, very, very interesting. <laughs> and most of them, most of them really didn't get full-time jobs. And uh, you do wonder if there's, well, there's obviously a degree of sexism there as well, because I don't think a lot of them aren't taken all that seriously. And possibly being popular didn't help either. Cause you know, re- writing popular books now might be attractive for universities for the publicity, but I think certainly back then they were like, we don't need that sort of thing. You have to be a serious scholar. Yeah, that, that's true. Although, I mean, she did write serious books as well. She she, she crammed a lot into into her working life. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was maybe an element too, and the fact that she became more or less a celebrity. And her fame, I suppose, made her a target then. And I'm thinking of what happened after she died, which is this big controversy that's called the Mead Freeman controversy. Um, and it's true that a foundational text like this, something that has such a big impact, is always going to be, you know, up for discussion and is going to be ripe for rereading and critiquing and taking it apart. And that's just the way it goes, and that's fine. But she did get sort of subjected to a sustain campaign then later by this guy, Gerald Freeman, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Uh, Derek Freeman, oh, yeah, Derek. Derek Freeman, who was <laughs> who was a New Zealander, a New Zealand anthropologist who was uh, he worked in Australia, and um, yeah, as as you say, he, he released a book in 1983, Mead and Samoa, which basically attacked her, attacked her work, and attacked attacked her research. Five years after her, after her death, so she couldn't exactly reply. 
And then uh, he published a second book in 1997 as well, which which sort of covered similar ground. And he seems to have become completely obsessed, actually, with Margaret Mead and completely obsessed with trying to debunk her her ideas. And, and a lot of it seems to have been very personal. So it, it's interesting. If you go onto YouTube, you, you do find videos there of Freeman on American television, on American mainstream talk shows, a, attacking Mead. And there's even uh, one interesting discussion where, where Mead's daughter is there and Mead sort of defends... Uh, Mead's daughter, Sarah Bateman, sort of um, defends her. And because Mead had such a high profile, what he said was instantly news, Got instantly got columns in the New York Times. And Freeman had actually done research in Samoa himself, and he felt that, that she had misrepresented uh, Samoa, basically. And um, <clears throat> so in the 1960s, apparently, he, he went to the villages which he worked in and looked to find her informants. But but basically his main problem, or one of his main problems at least, was that he thought that that she was culturally deterministic, that she saw everything in terms of culture and didn't give enough um, value to biology and to, to other different different things. Um, and eventually, eventually he found one of Mead's informants, and his his second book, his nineteen ninety seven book, is basically based upon his interview with her, and he suggests that Mead was gullible and and that people told told her untruths and and that sort of thing. And it, 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 it's interesting, too, because, I mean, if you read Freeman, you would swear that Coming of Age in Samoa is a central book to anthropology and that he's he felt as if he was attacking all of anthropology, whereas actually, as, as we already said, Coming of Age in Samoa is is a popular book. And it's, it's I mean, it's not really a central text to anthropology. It's a, it's a crossover book, which becomes important and it's very, very readable. But I mean, it's not as if it's a central scientific text for anthropology. And he sort of misrepresents the text there as well. And what he also does is he, he misrepresents the, the influence of the book. If you read Freeman, you'd swear that coming of age in, in Samoa creates flower power and creates 1960s counterculture. And I mean, that's ridiculously ridiculously over the top really it's it's a, it's a text that is, that's influential i think the counterculture reads mead and and her ideas feed into in 1960s and everything what happens there but i mean to suggest that that the book created the 1960s is, is bizarre really to be honest and another thing is that freeman seems to be a very unstable person himself he seems to have become sort of paranoidly obsessed with margaret mead really from an early stage and has a a difficult relationship with, with most people in his life, it would appear. And um, and he created Mead as some sort of image that he had to attack. And he saw himself as the pure scientist and Mead as as the, the non-scientist and the polemicist. Um, I mean, he sets up a straw man kind of concept, really. He creates this version of Mead, who, as you say, is dead. So, you know, can't reply. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he did have the opportunity. He was publishing before she died, so he could have done it when she was alive but he chose to wait till she was dead it's it's one of those academic feuds that comes from such a small small disagreement um and is magnified by a lot of weird things including i think there's a lot of misogyny going on there oh definitely definitely without a doubt and i mean as you say he was basically researching his book in the 1960s when Mead was very much alive and he could have, I mean, he, he could have uh, released it earlier. And as you say, it's a, it's a small difference, but the fact that Mead was such was such a celebrity, to, to be honest, sort of magnified the whole thing. And that it meant that he was able to go on the talk show circuit in, in the United States in 1983 when his book was released and that he was taken seriously because it was a news story. Uh, you know, um, some random guy in, in Australia... <laughs> Um, attacks this American uh, public intellectual. Interesting, Margaret Mead was, was defended pretty much by by all of the the, the leading anthropologists at the time, and Freeman very much became uh, a minority voice. 
And as you say, there's a strong degree of misogyny in what he was doing. And it wouldn't be odd if the people of Samoa had changed their minds about their society in the meantime and were anxious to represent it in a different way. I mean, it's a long time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, what she does is a snapshot of three villages in 1925. Do you know what I mean? And you can't go back there in the 1960s and, and attempt to, to recreate this context because the, the context is gone and it's, it's, it can't be brought back. And as you say, obviously, um, the, the three villages in American Samoa didn't remain constant, didn't remain stable. They were, they were changing the whole time. And, and even, I'm sure, by the 1930s, things had changed a lot. Yeah, surely. I mean, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a strange controversy that he piggybacked on her fame to become famous. Yeah. You know, like that's how he ended up on the talk shows because she was famous and he was attacking a famous person. It's a really toxic dynamic when you think about it in the media and fame and celebrity and everything. Yeah, yeah, definitely, actually. And that's, that's putting, putting it perfectly, I think, actually, in a lot of ways. It's sort of like he's, he's sort of like a Twitter troll <laughs> <laughs> in many ways. Yeah, before before that was obviously a, a, a thing. Um, yeah. And he, he achieves a, a type of fame on, on, on her back and by his his at times very personalized and very polemical attacks upon her. Yes, I mean there's whole books written about it, you know. <laughs> it's yeah. it's when yeah. you think about it, like for a feud to become so much that, you know, university presses produce whole books based on dissecting the feud and how it worked. That that is something. But it is it is still a perennial text though, I think anyway. I think it's really worth reading. I found it well written, cogent, quite interesting. I felt like I could read it easily. And as we said before, that, you know, it compares very favorably to a lot of books from this era, which can be very stodgy. They can be far too long. And there's usually a lot of racism. So this isn't too bad, you know. So would you recommend it now? Do you think it's still worth reading? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's a great book, really. <clears throat> and it doesn't really read like a book from the 1920s at all in a lot of ways. Uh, but I would say that I think it's it's a book really of, of radical political and social ideas. And I think it should be, it's more of a book of political philosophy in a lot of ways than a book of, of cultural anthropology, but it's definitely worth reading. <clears throat> when I was rereading it, actually, I found it very striking, her, her ideas about the nuclear family, where she talks about her villages in Samoa, where when you're growing up as, as a child, you have a number of different father figures and a number of different mother figures, and you're sort of collectively brought up and there's a flexibility there so that it doesn't, parenting doesn't result in, in micro conflicts, if you know what I mean. If there's something wrong, then you, you go to another father figure and, and things are sorted. And she compares that to the American context where you have a very conflict-laden type of parenting uh, and very intensive type of parenting. And she says that basically... Her argument is that maybe things could be more flexible and relaxed. And uh, it definitely got me thinking, actually, when I was reading it again um, during the week, which is amazing, really, for, for a book from the 1920s to, to still read so fresh and to still to still get you thinking about, about the way we raise our children, basically. Yeah, it has a lot to say about all sorts of things, you know, gender, generation, spatial arrangements. It's even loads about family working practices. It's stuffed with ideas, like you say. It's just... It was an incredible achievement, you know, and she wrote it in quite a short space of time and it's just put out there. And for it still to be so readable, I think it's an amazing thing that she did so young. Definitely, definitely. I mean, she was she was 24 when she went to Samoa as well. <laughs> she was, yeah. So it's time to do the most important part of the podcast, which is censorship bingo. Let's be honest. That's what everyone <laughs> is here for. I actually didn't think it was particularly rude. So let's see how we go. We start with breasts as usual. 
one of the things that really surprised me actually is that the picture plates didn't have nudie ladies in them because let's be honest a lot of kind of travel anthropology books you know going to places where people don't wear a lot of clothes do rather rejoice in putting bare-breasted women in the the color plates so I would say no to that definitely there was definitely no bestiality sex work well I, I suppose it didn't work in the conceptualization they had of sex it just didn't work no sex is uh, not for money it's for pleasure yeah <laughs> they didn't trade sex in that way racism well i know you could argue that she could be condescending but really even even now i mean i would think that it, it isn't a racist text she's not really horrible about these people she doesn't see them as subhuman or a lower class of humanity no definitely not although it is written at least partly in the language of the time so i mean she does talk about primitive cultures and and sort of compare it to the west but uh within its context and time i think it was very radical yeah i mean it's on it's on the way to being overtly racist in, in a lot of times but um i think it would be unfair to, to call it a racist i think so yeah Next up, drugs. No, nobody was taking anything that was mind-altering, were they? Didn't even seem to be drinking. So the cave. Yes, the fermented thing. But she didn't really emphasise the that that was intoxicating. No, definitely not. It, it doesn't seem to be nice. She wasn't interested in it either way. Yeah, yes. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Politics. Well, yeah. I think if if we take that, this is. A political book. I think we should take that one. Yeah, I definitely think so. So, uh, very radical social politics. I, I would have said, yeah, definitely swearing. No, there's no bad language at all. Infidelity. Well, yeah, she definitely talks about that. <laughs> Even though it's, it's not seen in those terms, it's sort of like um, just playing squash or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, sort of a hobby. But yeah, I, from the Western perspective, or from oh, yeah, well, from the perspective of the Irish censor, that was definitely not respecting the marriage vows. They don't even seem to have marriage vows in that way either, which, of course, is the problem from the Irish point of view. Uh, next up is crime. I have to say, I, she didn't really talk very much about misdemeanours. No, no, that's no, true. She even though at one stage she does talk of actually about violent rape and it only been something that was introduced from the West. And it's sort of... There is a kind of a form of sexual relationship that seems to be semi-non-consensual it's very odd the way she describes that that mm. that sort of creeping into houses at the middle of the night but i think no i don't think we can really take crime genitalia no it doesn't it's not explicit no. at all is it no she's interested in in patterns of behavior rather than the actual things themselves i suppose yeah yeah nothing about bits and what you you know what people were doing with them uh, abortion no she doesn't talk about termination of pregnancy orgies well no, because it doesn't seem that people are interested in group sexual relationships, at least not the ones she describes. Yeah, um, although it does at one stage talk about people going under the palm trees together, but but not swapping partners, I think, as far as I understood. No, it, it seemed to be so. a one-on-one -on -one sort yeah. of thing that she spoke about anyway. Uh, next up, sexual assault. Yeah, I think we could take that on the basis of the unusual description she had of men creeping into houses to try and have their wicked way with people yeah i think so too yeah. yeah it's certainly not considered the right way to have sex with people it's considered vaguely odd or distasteful definitely yeah and it is sort of it is sort of a taboo i thought it was interesting that the men who engaged in that were considered 
you know, to be slightly pathetic and ridiculous that a man couldn't get laid without having to trick someone into it. That was a really exactly. interesting <laughs> flip of what we, how we treat men who work and who are accused of assault. It's like, oh, that's just being a lad. Whereas they're like, that's not being a lad. That's just sad. Just being being pathetic yeah, and being laughed at. Yeah, which is in, was interesting. Being laughed at by the children and older people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how, how can you not get laid the normal way? What is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Extramarital pregnancy. No, I don't, she didn't mention anything like that, did she? Uh, I suppose not in those terms. I did wonder how they managed to be fooling around for so long and never get pregnant. You know, they're doing it for about six years or something that's true but i suppose when she says sexual relations it's not quite sure what exactly she means that's um true. so i mean it's it's in the realm of the unspecific which is sort of a, a large part of the book as well but yeah i did wonder about that too to be honest especially since they within her description of the three villages people started at a very young age yes I know it's like people are quite fertile in their teens as well. It would be difficult to get away with it for six, seven years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, masturbation. I don't remember her talking about that. Oh, she does. Did yeah. she? This is quite a large bit. Did I yeah, miss that yeah, bit? She even talks about um, about um, about group masturbation and people. In, in... Wow, fair dues. Right, we can take that one then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, sex toys. No, I don't remember anything no. like that. Next up is feminism. Well, I think it's, it's yeah, it is really quite, it's a text that's trying to challenge gender norms. So I think you'd have to call it feminist. Oh, yeah. yeah this this very strong, implicit feminism, I would say. Yeah. Well, yeah. Divorce. Yes, there is divorce. Easy, simple, walk out and say goodbye divorce. No, there's no church involved or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, they, she seems to leave any form of spiritual, religious life out of it entirely, whatever their beliefs are doesn't seem to impact on that particular aspect of their lives yeah definitely and she does mention the, the missionaries a lot and she does talk about i suppose the civil one form of protestantism but it's in the terms of there, there being sort of killjoys in a lot of ways. <laughs> and it's been a, a sort of a minor influence um yeah they don't seem to make a big impact on the the way that people think about their social lives anyway and the next box is contraception no, she didn't talk about that at all. No, it was well, something I was wondering about too, actually. Yeah, about... yeah in spite of the fact that you're just no. dying to know, are they using anything? <laughs> but yeah, I suppose because she's not being explicit about the practices, the physical practices, that she just doesn't bring that up. Uh, next up, menstruation. Did she talk about that? She does actually at one stage. Yeah, yeah at one stage she does, and she talks. Uh, she talks about sort of um, sort of work patterns and menstruation at one stage. Oh yeah, yes, she yeah. She didn't make a big deal of it actually. No, no, not at all. It's just, it's just a matter of fact way. Yes, of yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And then there's blasphemy. I'm sure the Irish censor would have found the whole thing deeply blasphemous. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, yeah, I'm sure the whole book is blasphemous <laughs> from a 1940s perspective. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that's most interesting, I think, is that it's trying to create a secular language of social development and psychology and all of that. That bears no relationship to, you know, religious morals. It just doesn't engage. It's like a parallel setup. And I think they would have found that just unconscionable like i wonder how they would have read it actually it'd be interesting to see um i don't think they would have understood it at all and would have just rejected it, i'd say to be honest i think the fact that it was banned at the same it's on the same list as one of sigmund freud's uh collected volumes and i just feel like they got it as uh, did they find someone's 
book collection got shipped in from someplace. <laughs> they just took <laughs> they just took books out and they got like a stack of relevant and interconnected books because uh, growing up in New Guinea is also banned at the same time. Means next book. Okay. So you know it's like. It's a really weird. The lists are really weird sometimes. They have these thematic connections, and I just wonder: is about the collection of books at point of entry into the into the country? Could be. <laughs> Why did they wait till nine till nineteen forty four? Just doesn't make sense. And the next one is oral sex. Well, no, she's not telling us anything about physical practices. So oh, Im- implicitly, probably I yes. Mean, it it, it <laughs> makes a lot of sense if you're going to be fooling around for years and not get pregnant <laughs> that you're doing stuff like that. <laughs> then graphic violence. No, it's it's all very peaceful and very pleasant. It is actually. It does at times. It does read a bit like a hippie commune. In fair- <laughs> going back to Freeman, I suppose. But yeah. Yes, they do argue and fall out, but nobody seems to beat each other up. And then the final box is queer content, and for certain, yes, there's the casual homosexuality. There are men who are known to be preferring other men and boys, like that. It is known as a orientation or a form of identity. So it's definitely there. Yep. Right. So what have we got? We have eight. Eight. Actually, that's not bad. <laughs> for uh, for an intellectual book, <laughs> too. Well. I mean, I'm pleasantly surprised because it feels so, I mean, it isn't explicit, but it also just doesn't feel like it's talking about rude things. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. And it's actually probably um, something to praise her for because she's so matter of fact and open about about these things and covers so many. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she strips all of the emotional transgression out of what she's talking about. She just makes it a thing that people do. And there you go. <laughs> Oh, that was great. Eight out of 25. I'm so pleased. It's always good when you get over five, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Fergal. That was great. I learned an awful lot about uh, popular anthropology and what it may or may not mean and how it was contested. And really, just I was so glad to read this book. It was a great opportunity. Thanks. Definitely. And thank you, Eva. Next time, we'll fast forward to the 1970s, when a publication called The Little Red School Book caused moral panics in Ireland, Britain, Australia, even Switzerland. It's only a small wee book, about the size of a pocket notebook, but it terrified the bejesus out of politicians and governments across the world. In Ireland, The Little Red School Book led to police raids, censorship and a deportation in an unbelievable story that will make your toes curl. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds absolutely filthy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.